Amen. If you have a Bible, or if you want to look on a, a phone or in a Bible on the seat, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. And we'll begin with verse 14 today, continuing through our, our series on uh, Jesus making disciples. As told by Mark, who's uh, the apprentice of, of the Apostle Peter. So Mark was the recipient of Peter's discipleship, and Peter was the recipient of Jesus' discipleship. They were faithful to pass on to the next generation, to, the, to others, what they had learned. And, and this is the theme of the church, that the gospel The good news of God's salvation is continually taught to others, and it doesn't just stop there. But it it presses on. It's passed on. It's like a a bucket that's filled from the top, but it has a spigot at the bottom, and it's never intended for that spigot to be closed and for it to just fill up itself. It always flows out to to others, and you and I are the recipients of this type of discipleship passed on through generations. Jesus is right in the middle of some intensive disciple-making, peeling away past teachings, and at times false teachings. The Pharisees, we've talked about, are the primary teachers in the land, and they have been teaching some things that are right and some things that are wrong. And today we're in part two, really, of of these these sermons that are around this one interaction with Jesus and some Pharisees and some scribes. And some of these scribes had come from Jerusalem, so they they were the big dogs that came in to confront Jesus, recognizing that there was danger for the status quo in Jerusalem, in the region that was coming from Jesus' revolutionary teaching. So they gathered together and then they, they accused the disciples. Last week we looked at this. They accused the disciples of not following the rules. They were, they were eating without ceremonially washing their hands. This was something that the Pharisees at least did, and it seems like many of the Jews had adopted this process that was, that was, it was over and above what God had commanded in the Old Testament laws. So last week we looked at this danger of adding to the law, of what the Jewish rabbis had come to call putting a fence around the Torah making some extra rules to keep people from getting close to breaking the actual rules. And there's wisdom in doing that at times, especially for children, people who are new in the faith. For ourselves, when we struggle with certain things, to stay away from those street corners, from those stores, from those advertisements, from whatever they are. There's wisdom in those things, but we need to be careful. Because so often, those extra rules end up keeping others from Jesus. 
from meeting the personal God who's made himself known to humanity. Those extra rules turn a very personal God who wants us to know him into a religion like all the other religions of the world. And what is characteristic of all the other religions of the world? There are a set of rules that make life seem to function all right. There are a set of rules that are oftentimes imposed by those in power, especially on those who are weak and downcast and unable to make it in life to keep things from getting out of hand. Like I pointed out just a minute ago, the law of God is a set of rules that works for society and culture, but it's, it's far more than that. The religion of the Bible, true religion is what it's called, is about the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it, made each one of you who knows you making himself known to you. Revealing himself and moving out of the way the things that break our relationship with him. And that's the subject of our sermon today. Oftentimes we think the things that get in our way of relationship with God are all the things that we did ourselves. But the Bible teaches something different. It says, yeah, those things contribute to your broken relationship with God. But your relationship broke with God a lot sooner than that. It broke way back when Adam and Eve sinned. And said, I, I, we've got a better way to do things. And you are inheritors of that sin. This sounds a little bit theological, but I, I think today's passage takes that theological abstractness and it brings it down to matter in our lives. We can understand who God is better, who we are better, and the significance of his reconciling our relationship with him. What defiles a person? Jesus goes on and he turns from these extra laws that they had added, and then he, he turns the disciples' world up on end here. You may not pick it up, but let's see if you pick it up. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them. So now he's been talking with the Pharisees and the scribes and his disciples are there, but now he calls a bigger crowd into the conversation. And he says to this crowd, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when Jesus had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, the saying, the riddle, what he just said. And Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, 
and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the, the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's word to us and for us. Let's pray. Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. For just as your law is good for us, our words, our thoughts are best for us when they are pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was just reading recently about a church in Louisiana where a pastor of a small church about our size, 18 families in this church, maybe, yeah, 18 families in this church, wanted to build a building. They met in different places, sometimes outside. And, and so he had this property that he owned, but it was a swamp. So he, he poured a bunch of clay into the swamp, six feet of clay, and waited for it to settle and planted grass over it. But he didn't have a building, and so he started to look around for other church buildings that he could buy and move there, but he couldn't find any church buildings that he liked. And finally, he found one that was in Nova Scotia, Canada. An old Anglican church building contacted the people who were managing this, went up and saw it, signed the contract to dismantle the church and bring it down to Louisiana and rebuild it. When the church started to be dismantled, the people of this town got upset. It was one of the oldest buildings in town, but no one went to the church anymore, and the Anglican church had decommissioned it years before. But it was a piece of history, but it was there to be sold, and so they went ahead and dismantled it, and shipped it, and rebuilt it in this other place. It looked a little bit out of place in Anglican church down in Cajun country. Families gathered to worship there and it was used again. There was life brought back into the building, but but the dismantling is upsetting and that's, that's what Jesus is doing here in a way that most of us just gloss over when we read it, that Jesus is dismantling portions of the Jewish practice in a very similar way that he's going to do when he and his disciples go to Jerusalem just before that fateful week 
and actually enters into Jerusalem and Jesus' is teaching and upsetting the, the culture there and turning over tables in the temple and then they, they go out of the temple and they go up on the mountain and they look back on it and they marvel at the beauty of this building while Jesus is talking about how the building has become dead, empty. He says, not a stone will be left unturned. Two key things identified the Jews with their God and their culture, and that was this temple that sat in Jerusalem and the food that they ate, more specifically, did not eat. Still to this day, two things identify the Jewish people more than any other. It is their food laws. And those who believe in the Bible and still hold to faith and practice that one day that temple will be rebuilt. Jesus is dismantling these two things. And for anybody in that audience there, for Jesus to say that what goes into the body, referring to what's being eaten, not just washing their hands, but he's talking about food as a whole. This turned over all their tables. So Jesus took this minor infraction that was in addition to the law, not washing their hands, and he uses it as a teaching point to say, look, you don't get it. You think all the things outside and around you are making you do all these things. You blame your problems on the foreign powers that keep oppressing you, on the Romans and those Babylonians before that and the Assyrians before that and all these outside influences when really the problem is inside you. It's not to say that those people don't have problems. It's not to say that ingesting certain things can cause you harm. Jesus isn't saying that old food won't give you food poisoning any more than he's saying going down to the house of prostitutes won't lead you into temptation or going to the store that sells stuff that you really want and that you covet will cause you problems. That's all true. But he is saying that our tendency is to blame those things when we really need to be looking inside ourselves at what causes us to desire some of those things. You see, there's a theological point here that he's making. But theological points are never intellectual. They're ne never just something for the mind and something for pastors to argue about. Theological points are always practical points. 
And the practical point of this is figuring out why we keep doing things that we know. The presumptuous sins that we read about earlier in Psalm 19. The things that we know we shouldn't be doing, but that we do anyway. The things that we try different techniques and practices to stop. But they never get to the heart of the matter. Now here's the theological point. Let's start with that and we'll move to the practical points. Actually, one theological point, two practical points. The theological point is this. Look, I read another story this week. Let me start with that. The story about a Jewish writer in New York City who went to visit a fairly new megachurch there in the city that is kind of the, the cool church. It's the church that people like Justin Bieber and the coach of the Knicks and these other people go to. They, they like being seen there. A bit like a rock concert. That's in subject for another story. But this Jewish writer spent some time with the two pastors there and the music leader. And, and she was really attracted to the, to the church. But in one conversation she had... She was talking about her Jewish faith, and something made one of these pastors comment to the side, yeah, a lot of people forget that Jesus was a Jew. He was well-intentioned, wanting to make that bridge with this writer. The writer's response really stuck with me. She said, Jews don't forget. Jews all know that Jesus was a Jew. Don't assume ignorance from people who don't believe. You're guaranteed to lose the day if you assume ignorance from other people who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. The reason that Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ was because He was bringing some things that upset the tables, that turned their lives on end. And at the center of this was this theological point that those laws that God had given in the Old Testament, not laws that had been added by the rabbis, but very specific laws for the Jews that they were not to eat certain foods. Mark adds a parenthetical point. He declared all these foods clean. Jews didn't forget Jesus was a Jew. They remembered that Jesus declared all foods clean and he was changing Old Testament laws, which begs the theological question, what's up? Why would God make laws and then change them later? And I mentioned this last week that we'll come back to this. There are certain laws in the Old Testament that are characterized 
by their ethical teaching. Their laws like avoid evil. <coughs> Don't have sex outside of marriage. <coughs> Don't steal from other people. <coughs> Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't do wicked things. Don't lie to other people. Don't let your thoughts be controlled by your sensual desires. Don't envy what other people have and not be satisfied with what you have. Don't slander other people. Don't let yourself be ruled by your pride your high thoughts of yourself, don't, don't be foolish. They're the moral commandments. They're the ways to love others, not steal from others, not take from others, not be mean to others. Mark doesn't record Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or his similar Sermon on the Plain that get at what God teaches us how to live, his morals. This is, this is basically Mark's summary of that teaching. We'll teach on those sermons another time. Jesus, over and over in his ministry, affirms these moral laws. He says, these never change. These are the way that life works best, that you don't take from other people what is what is not yours. They're the ways to love. But there's a whole other set of commandments in the Bible that sometimes we call ceremonial laws. They're laws about offering sacrifices at the temple to ask God for forgiveness for your sins. There are laws that say you need to circumcise male children and adults. There are laws that say you, the priests have to wash before they do certain things and laws that say don't eat certain foods. In this category of law, the New Testament goes out of its way over and over. Jesus teaches on it. The apostles wrestle through the issues. Who needs to be circumcised? Who doesn't? You see it come up over and over in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you're probably asking, what's this fascination with circumcision? It seems weird. <laughs> but these were important points for the Jews of the day because Jesus was turning over dismantling important parts of their faith and practice. And this, this still keeps Jews from believing in Jesus even today. And if we don't address these points, we don't do justice for why people don't believe in Jesus, and we also leave ourselves without answers about why certain laws still exist and others don't. 
And we allow ourselves to go back to the Old Testament and say, well, some of these don't and some of these do. I'll categorize them myself. This one I like. This one not so much. This one's good. This one, I don't get it. Put it over here. But we don't have the liberty to do that. It's only Jesus, God himself, who can come in and tell us which laws stay and which ones go. And they're very specific in the New Testament, which ones go. All the ones I just listed, they're referred to, like I said, as ceremonial laws. And the food laws are one of them. And all those laws go away for a reason, and it's because Jesus fulfilled them. He completed them. He made all these foods clean because he became the sacrifice that makes people clean. He said, no more do you have to offer sacrifices because my sacrifice is sufficient. He said, no longer do you need to go to the physical temple because now you, as the children of God, you are living stones that have built and are being built up into the real temple of God. He said, no longer does there need to be blood in circumcision because the blood has been shed on the cross. He said, no longer do you need to do these things, but you do need to keep doing things that remind you of this sacrifice. And so baptism replaces circumcision. And the Lord's Supper replaces the peace offering, the sacrifice that all the people participated in. And more than that, Jesus' Spirit enters into you and makes you clean from the inside out. And so it's not a game of trying to keep yourself from being defiled anymore. It's a matter of Jesus changing your desires. Pointing you to something better. Turning the law away from being a set of rules and into a delight of the heart. And this is the first point. These are relatively first practical point. It's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's the things that come out. Take, for example, the Olympics. Our kids don't watch a lot of TV with advertisements anymore because of the advent of Netflix and, and Amazon. But they watched a lot of commercials during the Olympics. And they loved McDonald's when they came out. We wanted them to see the Olympics and go exercise. And they instead want to go eat at McDonald's. Not really. I know you didn't. But you get the point, right? And we look at the commercials and we blame the commercials and it's easy to do, but really the problem is inside ourselves. We'd rather go eat junk food than exercise. Until, until we start to exercise. 
And when we start to exercise, we lose that appetite for the junk food, don't we? Until we start to love others and spend that time with them, and then our appetite for all the fancy stuff, the Lexus and everything else, to satisfy our desires gets less because we're finding fulfillment in our relationships. When we find fulfillment in our marriage, we stop looking elsewhere for some type of satisfaction or consolation. When the desires of our heart are changed, then that law is truly a delight. I need to make the second practical point here, and I started onto it, and so I don't need to spend much time now on it. But it's, it's that look, when we start down that path, we're also tempted to think that these things that are outside of us don't have an effect, or somehow we build up an immunity to all of these things, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. And we can watch whatever commercials or go to all of these places. But did you notice Jesus' illustration? It's not complete. He said, look, the food, it goes into your stomach and it's passed out. But the, the desires of the heart, and, and really he's talking about the heart and the mind, both, both emotion and intellect. That was the thought of the day of of where thoughts came from and thought was, was this, the heart was the center of it. He didn't say anything here about the teaching that goes into our, our minds, goes into our ears. He didn't say anything about the, the sights that we see. In fact, those things go into our mind and our heart. He didn't say anything about our neighbors and coveting what they have. He was talking fairly specifically about the food itself and, and that the food doesn't corrupt you or defile you. But it's clear from other parts of Scripture that, that the eye and what it sees and desiring it can cause you to sin. And so Jesus says, if the eye causes you to sin, cut it out. He says, there is danger in going to those places that you need to be aware of. And so don't take a high-handed view of these things and enter into those places over and over again and justify gratuitous violence, sensuality, not just in film, but in your books that you read, in, in plays and performances that you see, in conversations you have with others that seem fairly harmless. You see, these things do enter the mind. They enter the heart and they shape our desires more than what you 
think and realize they do. There's nothing neutral out there. The stories that people tell in these books and in movies, they are intended to communicate something to you and to change your desires. Don't be naive thinking that you can just sit down and check out for a while. I need to rest, so I'm going to turn on the TV. The only place where there's true rest is in Christ. The only place where you can sit down and relax and be sure that the influence is positive is when you read your Bible. Even when you pray, your mind can be led in directions away from God if it's not led by Scripture. And when we turn back to the Bible and understand Jesus' teaching and the use of the moral law and His fulfillment of the ceremonial laws, we're reminded of this important theological point. That all of us have this evil inside of us. Craving these things that lead us away from God and breaking our relationship with God. All of us have that because it came from Adam and Eve and their first sin. And that was a really significant sin. It corrupted all of us except one person, the Bible tells us. It corrupted all of us except for Jesus who had no evil inside. Jesus was born because the Holy Spirit put a baby in Mary and he was born without that original sin and because he had no evil inside his life was righteous and can give you the righteousness inside of you that you cannot have otherwise. Apart from him this whole thing of life becomes this game of religion where we're trying to create a set of rules that we can follow enough that we measure up and that we're better than other people. And when we fail, we're in despair and when we succeed, we're pompous and arrogant. And that is not true religion. Because the only true religion is a belief in Jesus Christ as the one who can give you righteousness inside and replace the evil inside you. Who can change your desires. C.S. Lewis said in Weight of Glory, that famous sermon of his, it's not that our problem is our desires or the desires that lead us astray. Our problem is that our desires are too weak. For the things of God. We keep trying to tamp down the evil inside of us by killing our desires when we need to create in ourselves and really let God create in us desires that put out those fires, that change our hearts, that reshape our lives, that are exercise, that builds on exercise. And that are constantly grounded in the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. No evil inside of him. You see how 
all of your efforts to stop doing the things you want to stop doing, they, they, they keep falling apart because you keep trying the same thing over and over again. But the message of the gospel is a very different message. And this is true love. And enabling us to love others like God has loved us. And to follow His his moral one. Let's pray. Father, we fail to keep your law so often and are tempted to put parts of it in the box. It doesn't need to be followed anymore. But Lord, will you replace our weak desires with strong desires rooted in Christ. Help us put those things back in the box of saying they're good. Your law is perfect. It revives our sorrowing souls. It gives life to our dead hearts. Peels away the hardness of our heart to you and to others. Remind us of this over and over, Lord, we pray in Jesus' powerful name, who had no evil inside himself. Amen.